I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Hello and welcome to season 10 of the Parenting Aces podcast. It's hard to believe that we've been doing this this long, but I hope everyone had a wonderful holiday season. Uh, COVID be damned. I hope you at least got to be with some of your loved ones over the holiday and maybe got to play a little tennis or watch a little tennis. Who knows? But we are starting season 10 with uh, a young woman who... And this is going to make me sound so old. I actually used to babysit her. <laughs> she is now a full-fledged adult woman, a professional, a um, therapist, and she is going to be talking with us today about performance anxiety in young athletes. And this is a topic that I've kind of danced around in the past, but never really dug into really deeply. So I'm thrilled to have Abby Gold with us on this week's podcast. And Abby, I'm just going to unmute you and bring you on. Welcome. And thanks so much for doing this. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Fun. So this is my first time doing one of these. Well, there you go. So, and it's my first time interviewing somebody I used to babysit. So first for <laughs> both of us. <laughs> Perfect. So I mentioned in the in the introduction that we're going to be talking about performance anxiety. And first of all, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what it is you do, what your background is, and your training? Mm-hmm. So my I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, which doesn't translate well across the country. It has a different, um, it's an LMFT, but on the East Coast, it's more popular to be an LPCC or um, something else that I can't remember, but some letters. Uh, There are variations on counseling, but uh, West Coast, LMFT is the more traditional um, all-around therapist who is not, a doctor, so not a psychologist, but therapist, which there is a difference that you are um, required to understand and not uh, mislabel yourself. But um, I, so I'm a therapist. I do psychotherapy. I meet with clients individually. I have a private practice. I spent the last decade working um, at treatment centers. I I started um, with kids and their families uh, dealing with autism spectrum disorders uh, and then transferred to an eating disorder clinic and for the last few years was the clinical director of a residential treatment program um, for females with eating disorders, which really just means females who have an eating disorder but struggle with everything else under the sun. Um, So a, a lot of it actually did end up relating to this idea of performance anxiety. Um, and then personally, I uh, have a background. I played tennis growing up. My parents, are they met through tennis um, in college. Tennis is a big part of the family world. And um, I did play through high school. 
I do have two championship rings. I did not participate that much in claiming those, but I have them. <laughs> um, and I'm grateful to those who allowed me to have it. And then I also danced. So okay. performance has been a part of my life in a lot of different ways. Um, and I think it just so naturally wound up that I end up doing what I do. Really cool. So when we say the term performance anxiety, can you define that for us? Yeah. So performance anxiety is really anything performative, which is almost everything these days, um, especially when you do social media. But sure, it's the idea of any negative thoughts that we have about ourselves um, impacting what we're doing, how, how we're showing up in the world. And having, a, I think we we all tend to have an understanding of anxiety. I can explain what anxiety is itself too, but it's this idea that there's a, a cognitive experience on some level, whether it's conscious or not, that is impacting the way that we perform a task or sport or do a something. Right. And so in terms of, you know, honing this down to yeah. make it specific for tennis because parenting aces deals with tennis mm -hmm. and, and mostly the focus is on junior tennis and college tennis. So thinking about tennis athletes from the ages of let's say age four to 22, which is a pretty wide range. Uh, but there's a, a lot of uh, developmental stages that are part of that age range. Yeah. Right. Um, so when we talk about performance anxiety in terms of tennis specifically, can you think of some examples of what might you see that would, that would cause you to label it performance anxiety? Yes. So I would say that there, in the same way that there's a range of ages, it's certainly going to be age dependent because it's going to align with, um, you know, their, their developmental stage. And so if somebody is, uh, in a younger age where they're less, um, introspective, I would say less able to analyze what's going on for them, you're probably going to see performance anxiety show up more in how, it, how aware they are of an observer or how much they may want to go do, do their match or play a game or even go to practice. Um, you know, how they show up in practice, it's going to be a little bit more behavioral um, versus or somatic as well. You know, like a kid that gets a stomach ache or doesn't feel well when they're really nervous, but they don't mm -hmm. know how to articulate that it, it's nerves um, or even outbursts, you know, like getting really upset, really mad at somebody, not liking a coach, things like that. Um, and then as they get older, it's going to be, you know, performance anxiety isn't linked to struggle. Exactly. Right. So I think a lot of times people see it as, well, they're having a hard time. And so they're mm -hmm. not, it's, it shows up when someone's not doing well, but if they're successful, they don't really have performance anxiety. And that's really not true. I think that's important to understand is that performance anxiety does not have a, doesn't have to have a direct uh, outcome of failure or struggle. Mm -hmm. Um and so as somebody's older, it can show up in similar ways or a little bit more nuanced where maybe they're having a harder time 
um, with their self-talk or you start to see little behaviors that they do in response to certain moments. There's more of a clear link between, um, say, throwing a racket and a bad shot or um, maybe getting discouraged and not wanting to go to practice, but also then isolating entirely and, and just sort of more in their head and distant, disconnected. Uh, it could also just be somebody who gets nauseous or a loss of appetite before matches or before a practice or um, even just gets hyper-focused on it. Sometimes that's praised and it's like, oh, we want them to be passionate and have an identity attached to something. It makes them unique and uh, maybe it'll help them drive success home in a way. And it's um, right. also maybe a way of controlling the anxiety. Just I, let me know every single thing about the sport and about the players and the, the, I don't know, who has what backhand and what racket and try to replicate that and that'll help. Mm -hmm. So a search for security in something is frequently how performance anxiety shows up, a way of managing it. Interesting. And so, I mean, I came up in the theater world and stage fright's a real thing, right? And mm -hmm. is, so is, is, is stage fright a form of performance anxiety? I would say yes and no. It depends. Okay. So a lot of times performance anxiety has to sort of be linked to um, something that is maladaptive, I, I would say. There's a level of helpful anxiety. There's... Um, you know, we want to be uh, psyched up for something. Mm -hmm. we, we want to be pumped. I think, you know, in theater, as a dancer, even in tennis, playing doubles, there was this like camaraderie, team chant. There was a something that would happen that was like gearing you up, but it was all based on this, like, we've got to do it, which is a little bit of an anxiety um, or, or sort of a, a compliment to anxiety, right? It's, it comes from an anxiety energy and energy anxiety is energy. And that's okay. one thing that I would emphasize. So is it different? It's performance anxiety that is helpful hmm. instead of okay. harmful. Got it. So, I mean, and yes, I hear what you're saying about like the pump up thing. And certainly, you know, if you ever go to a college tennis match or even a high school tennis match, you see the huddle before the first players yeah. go on court, you know, and they, they do their team chant and their big high five and, you know, let's go or whatever. Um, and you see a lot of players during matches, you know, do the fist pump and the come on or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. That's a type of positive. Yeah. That's like, yeah. There, I mean, there's a social element to all of these things. And I, that's also where, you know, you, to look at somebody's, affect or competitiveness or their um, confidence in terms of how well they're connecting to the people around them or to their opponent or to their, maybe it's not even a team, but it's just in a clinic. How well do they get along with everyone? That can be a sign of, do they feel like they're playing still at all? Or is it just really rigid? Has it become so... Uh, attached to success and the need to succeed or win that they've they're sort of in their head and making themselves anxious there's a there's a sort of a line that can be crossed yeah and sometimes we don't always realize that it's an anxiety because it can look like 
well, they're super serious or, you know, they, they try to get in the zone. And so mm-hmm. that's where performance anxiety, I would say there's, it's one thing to start to know how to recognize it either for someone else or for yourself, but it's another to be able to have a conversation about it. We, right. I think a lot of times people don't even realize that they're struggling with something until they know how to, what it looks like to struggle with something or, or what it can look like, that it can take so right. many different forms. Well, and I think that's one of the tricky things when you start talking about the mental side of tennis, right? There is that fine line between something that is going to energize in a positive way, encourage, um, excite, you know, and, and have a positive repercussion versus something that does cross that line and cause negative outcomes, negative Mm -hmm. behaviors, negative stress, physical ailments. Um, There are all sorts of incarnations of Mm -hmm. anxiety, right? So if, if I'm a parent and I'm concerned that my child may be approaching that line or even starting to cross that line, what are some things that I'm looking for that yeah. would cause me to say, you know what, we need to maybe take a closer look at this? Mm-hmm. So I would say before that, I, w- I would want to encourage parents to just know conversations can happen all the time. Um, that you don't have to wait for something to be inquisitive, you know, that that I think it's helpful to engage kids in conversation about whether they're still liking something, if they're having fun, if they're not having fun, if they know why, you know, not being afraid of just um, checking things out instead of getting comfortable in a certain pattern or, Mm -hmm. you know, well, my kid does this on Thursdays. Um, So I would start there and that would set the stage for, okay, if you're starting to notice something, conversations already hopefully comfortable enough that you can share that with them. Hey, I started noticing that you know, you're doing this and this, or you seem like you're a little bit less motivated to go. Do you still want to go? You having fun with it? But there, it gives you a baseline to jump off of um, in terms of recognizing something. Otherwise, I would say, if just ask them, maybe ask the coach. I think the coaches are a huge part of this, you know, being able sure. to, they're sort of an extension of the parenting when it comes to tennis or the sport. And so, um, hopefully they're well-versed in knowing how to jump into the conversation as well, or just be a space where somebody can talk about whatever's going on for them. Um, And I know that that is normalized that, you know, if they're starting to get in their head or if they're feeling a pressure or if they're feeling like they don't like it, sometimes it's not even that they don't like it. It's that they're wanting it to be a certain way and they're sort of stuck in feeling like maybe they can't be, that, that good or they can't win or they're not winning or what happens if they do even, you know, afraid of success, that's certainly a part of it um, or can be. And so it's helping them feel a sense of awareness for where, where they're at with their relationship to playing and where they want to go with it um, and feeling safe enough to talk about it. Well, and I think, you know, that's a a message that has kind of been at the base of Parenting Aces since we started is this whole idea of opening lines of communication, you know, within the triangle, which is, you know, the parent, the player, the coach, Mm -hmm. making sure that those lines of communication are constantly staying open and that everyone is checking in with everyone else to make sure that the goals are still the goals and that everybody's yeah. in alignment with what it's going to take to achieve the goals. And, you know, that 
maybe, you know, if things aren't going well for a period of time, talk about why that's happening. Maybe there's something going on at school. Maybe there's something going on with friends or, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend or whatever. And, Mm -hmm. but just making sure that those lines of communication do stay open so that as you're saying, when something seems a little bit off, you have that baseline to mm-hmm. gauge it and say, this is, this is not yeah. normal for this particular child. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and hopefully to help the coach do that or the kid to do that too. Sure. Say, I'm starting to feel this way, but performance anxiety. I mean, you just touched on it could also be an extension of other anxiety. It doesn't, it may land in a performance anxiety way for the sport. For example, going from school, maybe not doing well on a test and having a friend problem or boyfriend or girlfriend problem and then having to go play a match like that can just translate into, Oh, what if I'm not good here too? And Mm -hmm. so sometimes performance anxiety may show up one place, but also be an extension of another. In which case it seems like, you know, if the other things are, are resolved, then the performance anxiety hopefully would be resolved as well. So that's not as much what, I, I want to focus on for today because that's kind of a one-off thing, mm-hmm. but I think there's so many players that struggle with an ongoing sense of performance anxiety, not being good enough, not achieving their potential, not, you know, making mom and dad happy, not making the coach happy, um, whatever, you know, maybe they're scared. They're not going to do well in a particular tournament that a college coach is going to be at and that college coach then won't make them an offer of a scholarship. I mean, there's so many pieces. Yeah. When there's a lot riding on it. I mean, there's so much pressure to have, you know, every moment count, you know, to, to, and because it does. So the truth is, well, and that's healthy. I mean, to a point it's healthy to have that. I was going to say that exact thing. It's, um, this is, they're not playing to not win, you know, they are playing to have fun, but also there is a component of it that is competitive. And I think it's about teaching competition in a way that supports each individual and their skill set, or to at least be able to honestly appraise what's going on for them. Even if I really am bummed that I didn't do well here, how can we help kids instead of going, okay, so I have to make it work the next time, feel a little bit like, okay, let me explore why I didn't do that well here. Was that person just really good? Put up a a tough game. And how can I, you know, make sure that I put up a tough game too, instead of starting to get in my head and feel like I'm not good enough because I lost, you know, I'm maybe not going to be seen the same way. Now I have to try even harder and have this pressure that just builds upon itself in a way that actually ends up, for some people, it actually might motivate them, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, ooh, I got to do better. And then some people it might start to have them fade a little bit, start to get into their head. I mean, we see this in professional tennis too. When you're watching someone, they hit a terrible shot and you go, oh my God, and we're all judging them as though we could do better, you know? <laughs> and, and we're watching them and we're going, no, no. And because maybe it was such an obviously bad shot, that person gets in their head too. And you start to watch them have this, this sequence of bad shots until like that, that points over and you're going, okay, well... Hopefully they regroup when they take a drink, you right. know, but it's, it's normal for everyone. So really it's observing, observing e- each other and observing maybe a change and being able to talk about that and then observing self and noticing when 
something isn't feeling good or when something feels a little bit more suffocating too, when the pressure just starts to feel um, so all or nothing as opposed to something that, that a kid can work with. Because the goal also is to find talent, to find people that, you know, coaches can groom, that teams can utilize. There is no perfect. Mm-hmm. So as I'm listening to you, you know, I, there is some amount of performance anxiety that's normal that mm-hmm. almost everybody experiences at one point or another, if not every single time, right? But is there a point at which you would say, okay, if you see this, that is that glaring signal that, okay, we need to take Mm -hmm. a step back here, maybe engage a professional like you uh, to intervene and help devise or, you know, come up with some tools for this child to better cope with what's going on. Yeah. So I feel like there's a few different avenues in for that. You know, if you're seeing some behavioral, some temperament issues, some um, noticing that your child or or yourself are starting to have a lot of defeat, self-defeating thoughts or um, noticing there's a lot of comparison maybe in in a way that, they seem to be really down on themselves about or um, starting to get a loss of appetite or an increased appetite prior to playing or afterwards, right? There's a discharge, maybe less sleep, maybe just um, quieter, maybe more of an uncharacteristic, you know, introvert aspect, or maybe they're starting to be more extroverted in an uncharacteristic way. And, um, if they're not able to have a conversation about what's going on from there, but it feels concerning, then I would, I would go talk to, like, get somebody else involved. But that might seem like an obvious one. Okay, if I can't get my kid to talk, then sure, yeah, I'm going to ask for help. Um, otherwise, I would say, if you notice something happening with their um, basic needs, that's a really um, important one, because that could be... Uh, on the path to a threatening condition. So we really want to make sure. Such as? So for example, an eating disorder. I've worked with some clients, like I said, eating disorder history, but um, they may not actually be intending to have it mount up to being a problem, but the loss of appetite, and then they start to feel like there's a sense of control. So it can start with a performance anxiety of wanting to be great, telling themselves they might not be, needing to be, being so nervous that they, they're they not hungry beforehand. Um, but because they're practicing, because they're a great athlete, they start doing well and they link it, may, may link it to, oh, well, when I'm not eating this, I do well. So now it's hmm. gonna be a rule, a rule to control the anxiety. Um, and then at some point could get really out of hand if they're also working out a lot, start to actually believe this instead of having the anxiety piece that started it or the desire to be successful and having that, you know, be something they can breathe with and, and tolerate. I want to be good and I'm afraid of not being good. Unless we can like hit it there, it can get out of control. So. Which is tricky too, because for some kids, especially female athletes, 
as they start to lose weight, they start to get praised, right? The coach says, yeah. oh, I noticed you you seem to have lost some weight. Good for you. That's going to help you move better around the court, you know, exactly. and the parents are, you know, maybe say, oh, you've lost weight. Let's go shopping and buy you some new clothes. And the friends may be commenting on it. And so mm-hmm. what started, as you said, is something just kind of under control becomes mm-hmm. a controlling thing. Right. Exactly. Or even just the idea of wanting to be seen, right? Like have mm-hmm. a scout see you. Well, if you're afraid of not being the best skillfully, then maybe you can stand out in another way. Um, and then also have some skills that back it up enough to be chosen. So, it, I mean, it can be super, um, sort of unconscious, but subtly become more intentional. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes us so difficult for a parent to recognize when that line has been crossed, right? Mm-hmm. Because it starts out as being something that seems healthy, mm-hmm. seems normal, it seems helpful. Yeah. But then it it's not all of a sudden. Yeah. There's also, I mean, even just little behavioral things. One thing, I can't remember where I heard it or read it, but... Um, you know, a lot of the tennis players that you watch on TV or, or just maybe yourself, I certainly did these things and I was not at all <laughs> of a certain <laughs> league, um, but start to do ritualistic behaviors, which is a way of controlling the anxiety, right? We have the good anxiety, but we also have anxiety that sometimes needs to be tamed, what, where we don't know what to do with it. And it's just there, but we've got to perform. We've got to play. We've got to show up and we don't want to get in the way. And so until somebody learns some techniques to manage that, to first of all, know that that's happening, recognize it. And second of all, to do something with it. Um, oftentimes people are prone to something less conscious, like I said, with the food or with maybe bouncing the ball X amount of times or needing to do a little thing with your shorts or pull the hat, you know, and we come up with these ways where we go, okay, this is how I settle and focus. This is Mm -hmm. how I nail the shot. We start playing mind games on ourselves. And those can really take a turn if we're also prone to anxiety patterns or if it's just unaddressed anxiety that gloms on to the relief that comes from being able to do something to take care of it. So also noticing, can you do that shot without the pattern? You know, okay, I noticed you've got this thing going. Try it without it. Or what if you bounce the ball twice instead of three times? Helping in, integrate some flexibility because even though there's an element of that that's natural, that's almost, um, it is helpful. It literally is helpful. It does have a an effect on the human that helps them feel like they're going to perform better and then they do because our, our sort of thoughts and actions go together. Um, right. But at the same time, if this isn't, something they can do without it, then it does have an element of being unhelpful. Um, a lot of, there was this thing that I was going back to the um, source I was talking about that I can't remember, was about how so many players would be considered to have OCD, this yeah. ritualistic behavior, but we don't label it that because it's actually helping their performance. Right. You know, 
And well, so, and, and it's very common in tennis. I mean, kids are taught from a very young age to have a between point ritual, to have a ritual mm-hmm. on side changes and to stick to it. And they practice it on the practice court. And, yep. you know, coaches are watching for it during matches. Parents are watching for it during matches because this is something that they're trained to do and are expected to do very consistently when they're practicing and competing so that they hone it. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and again, visualize it even when you're not doing exactly. it to yes. practice all of it. Yeah. Yeah. So this is again, what makes it so tricky to kind of pinpoint when does it go from a beneficial ritual to a performance anxiety that is having a negative impact, the opposite impact that you want it to have. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's so difficult as a parent, as a coach, to recognize when that line has been crossed. And certainly Mm -hmm. for a kid to have the self-awareness to say, "Mm, you know, this is Mm -hmm. kind of crossed a line. I'm not sure what to do here and to ask for help. Yeah. And that's where I think being an observant parent or coach, and then also using your own relationship with that, that child um, is really going to be the most helpful tool in the tool belt, because that's how you can really gauge a truth for yourself. Even if the child doesn't know something's going on, does something feel like it's going on for you? You know, Mm -hmm. I get to rely on myself as the resource um, and say, well, I feel like there's, this is different. You know, help me understand why I would feel that way if something's not going on. Yeah. That's a good point. And I think, you know, a lot of parents are really good at that, at trusting their instincts and their gut when it comes to their own child. And others are not so good at it. And, you know, there's a range. But um, I think, you know, as parents, we know our children better than anyone. They don't always share everything with us, but certainly we're around them more than anyone else. Mm -hmm. And so I think your, your point that if something feels different, if it feels, it's just not sitting well with you, then that's the time to maybe take a look at whether something else is going on and maybe seek counsel from somebody like you, or, you know, Mm -hmm. even talking to the coach first and, and maybe even engaging the teachers at school to see if they're noticing similar behaviors mm-hmm. during the school Absolutely. day. Because does performance anxiety limit itself to one activity or can it kind of spread to Yeah, contagion theory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, yeah. Um, I, I would say, I mean, I want to first say that you're right. Parents I think, can either be great at going with their instincts or a little bit nervous too and afraid of rupture with their relationship with the kid. And I would say, and I I do always say, risk it, risk being wrong because the worst that can happen is you apologize and you repair. You know, Mm -hmm. if there's the ability to come back and repair with each other, it doesn't matter if you were wrong. It it was just a, a nothing. We were wrong. But and it was done from right, love, and right? Exactly, it's done from love. exactly. And concern and, you know, just availability. If you're not going to do it and something does happen, that's going to be tough. So 
it's harder to repair and rebound from feeling like you missed something. In the same way that it's hard to remember that you missed a shot, you know, you yeah. want to at least have, have tried to run for it instead of watched it go by. Um, right. And then, yeah, there's an, sort of like the idea of the food or the OCD behavior stuff getting out of control. It absolutely could spread to other things. It can, because the so much of performance anxiety has to do with the way that somebody is speaking to themselves about themselves. And that doesn't end up getting limited to the sport itself. It can be, but it also becomes a, I'm not going to do well, or I'm not good enough. And that's not specific to, to one thing when you hear that statement. So if that takes on a certain amount of energy, it absolutely could replay in the next test. I mean, you hear about performance anxiety a lot with tests and SATs, ACTs, all those things. Um, but yeah, so it can become a social thing. Okay, well, if I don't think I'm good enough here, lack confidence over here, and now I'm just going to kind of fade into the background and, and focus on this. Um, so yeah, there's a lot that could come of it, which is why, yeah, if, if you want to talk to a teacher and get some more input, super helpful. But any any area where the kid is, hopefully there's somebody who's been able to observe something that you can bounce some ideas off of or get some feedback. And if the person says, no, no, everything's great. They're doing great. It still doesn't mean that it is. Right. Um, so if there's that spidey sense in you of going, <laughs> eh, something's yeah. off though. Yeah. Start a conversation. So, so let's assume that it's, it's now become pretty clear that something's going on with your child, that they're having performance anxiety, whether it's limited to the tennis court or it's exhibiting itself in other areas of their life. And you now need some strategies for how to help your child through that. Mm -hmm. Are there steps to take prior to engaging the services of a professional therapist or counselor? Certainly. I mean, so much is online these days. There's, great books out there. There's great, I'm sure there's tons of YouTube videos. Um, there's the coach. Uh, there are workbooks on CBT. There, I'm sure there are workbooks on performance anxiety, but there are different therapeutic techniques that have, workbooks that have worksheets where you can practice changing your thought pattern or exploring what your self-talk is or what that even means, you know, getting to know your own Jimmy Cricket part of yeah. how, what it's it can be so automatic that so many times kids don't even people but it's not limited to kids people don't realize what they tell themselves on such a regular basis mm -hmm. um, and and what it sounds like or what it looks like to actually reflect on that to to carry the weight of it you know a lot of times when we slow down and think about what we're telling ourselves and think about telling someone else we wouldn't and it's yeah. an obvious, like, why would I? What? I wouldn't. I would never. So right. why are we telling it to ourselves? And what are we going to do about it? So there are a lot of workbooks and worksheets out there that would help somebody teach a kid without a therapist to start practicing their mental game with themselves as well. Um, mm -hmm. And, and we'll, at the we'll same try time, and list some of those in the show notes, too, so people can... Yeah have some links to kind of explore some different options. I would say though, that it really, like the intervention that you use really depends on making sure it works with the temperament of your child. 
because if the kid is already such a perfectionist that, you know, telling them they need to do some more homework is going to make them feel like even more stressed failed and then now also I didn't perform well enough and I have to do this really well as opposed to actually integrate Mm -hmm. what it means to do it in the first place so you really want to make sure that you're aware of what kind of a child you have what are their traits and what works for them in the same way that you would say what coach is good you know Mm -hmm. you, you want to make sure your intervention is too right And so are things like yoga or meditation, are those helpful tools for Mm -hmm. someone that's experiencing performance anxiety? Super helpful, Um, but used correctly. So in in a lot of ways, we want to de-escalate a person with performance anxiety, ground them, but we don't want to take their focus off of the psyched up part, you know, which is part of that fine line of how do we know when it's too much or enough. Um, so yeah, so using them, that's where I think labeling thoughts, having a kid understand what is helpful and unhelpful about what they're doing, you know, when are they starting to spin out of control a little bit and then using these techniques, either deep breathing or progressive muscle relaxation. Like I said, in the beginning, somatic stuff can be a side anxiety, you know, are they really rigid, maybe even injury. Are they starting to get injured more? Is that because they're so tense because they're so anxious that they're trying Mm -hmm. so hard that now their body is in a new pattern that's causing them to pull muscles more often or, you know, stumble, roll an ankle, things that maybe weren't happening as much before. So these things where we want to get them back into their body, but also mentally in the game as opposed to against themselves and in the game. Yeah. Um, Really being strategic with with how to use them and, and when. And so if, if a, not just a child, any person presents to you as a client and says, you know, I'm struggling with performance anxiety and they may not use that term, but what they're describing to you, you're like, ding, 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 performance mm-hmm. anxiety. Um, what are some of the strategies that a professional would then use that would kind of take that next step beyond what a parent or a coach might be able to help mm-hmm. them with. So just to get, I, I, and I'm asking you this, Abby, just so that the listeners understand what happens when yeah. you engage with a counselor or a therapist and let's take a little right. of that fear of the unknown away. Yeah. Um, so number one, ideally there's at least one part of a two-person conversation that is confident enough to have the conversation, which is really important. Because sometimes when a parent and a child are having a conversation, there's this trying not to step on each other's toes, trying to be careful, and that lack of confidence can sometimes mean the kid doesn't feel as comfortable sharing it all, doesn't want to affect the parent negatively, doesn't want the parent to worry more, you know, so it just doesn't lend itself to having the most honest conversation, not because they don't trust the parent, but they're actually trying to protect them. Um, So one thing to expect is that there's more space for everybody to talk openly. There's a little bit of um, the feel, hopefully the feeling that you can breathe easier, that there's more air in the room um, because one person is less attached to the results, you know, more the listener and space holder. There would be an assessment of sorts Ideally, um, gently exploring the situation and how it's showing up 
and purely by the right questions and the right approach to the assessment, performance anxiety would be something that not only the therapist would pick up on, but the client or the family as well, because it would be, so these are the symptoms that you're experiencing, and then here are the events that you experience them in, and they, they start to line up. So there's safety in knowing, oh, I'm, I'm doing the right thing. I'm on the right track. It doesn't have to be this, like, oh, God, what are they going to uncover? What are they going to tell me about myself? And, you know, just sort of afraid of looking at this mountain of work ahead of you to become a better human. It's it's not like that. It's really going to be more solution-focused, but self-driven. You know, what is bothersome to you? Because what's bothersome to me may not seem bothersome to somebody else. but. Mm-hmm but it's affecting my life, you know, or what isn't bothersome, rituals, doing the ball, whatever it is, could be identified as a problem. But if I'm not willing to change it, if I don't trust changing it, if I don't want to, because I like that part, what I don't like is afterwards, I'm so exhausted, I can't do anything else. Mm -hmm. Okay, then let's work on what actually is my performance anxiety, taking an individualized approach to it, which is something that you can't really do on your own. try to and try to gauge which workbooks or worksheets feel good, but to understand the complex nature of individualizing treatment, it really takes sort of an objective, non-biased observer. Yeah, and I get that because as a parent, you don't want to add to your child's stress, certainly, by asking maybe leading questions that all of a sudden the light's going to go off in the child's head and say, Oh my God, something's wrong with me. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't want to lead them down that path as, as the parent. And, and like you said, that whole notion of the child wanting to protect the parent and not make the parent feel like they've done something wrong. Right. There are a lot of kids that take on that burden for themselves. And um, especially when parents sometimes are the coaches as well, or oh yeah, that's a whole know, other can of worms play partner. Yeah. 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 It's a challenge, but, but I think what's important here is to understand that performance anxiety is a, a real thing. It's B something that's very common, especially I would think in an individual sport like tennis, where there's, it's not like you can tap out when things start to get tough. No, you have Mm -hmm. to dig in and stick with it until the match is over till the tournament's over. I mean, you're, you're in it by yourself. And so this, I would think, you know, lends itself more to participants in a sport like tennis developing performance anxiety because just the nature of it. Um, yeah. And, and then, having spectators. I mean, there's literally, you're not just performing a task, but you're performing in front of people. Like people are watching your match, uh, either your teammates, your parents, your coach, your scouts. I mean, right. you're, you're there performing. Right. And it's only you out there. So that can be anxiety producing. But again, there's that fine line between the positive, you know, kind of psych up energy that you need to go out and perform well versus the debilitating anxiety and stress over, oh, my gosh, what if I don't do this the right mm-hmm. way today and fail? You know, yeah. what does that mean? And understanding, I think, what a win and a loss actually mean in the long run. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is another topic that we've discussed ad nauseum on this podcast is the whole notion of the growth mindset and understanding that, 
it's not about wins and losses, but about continuing to grow and develop and get better at this game and um, letting go of the whole wins, losses, rankings, all of those things. But it's difficult. It's difficult yeah. to let go of that, those things because those are the comparators from player to player. That's how you decide where mm-hmm. you fit in the hierarchy. So mm-hmm. it makes it Yeah, very and I difficult. think even in our our recent election, it's it's clear that we need to to be good models of of fair game, of respect, of um, a proper handshake at the end of a match, you know. And well, now the racket tap with COVID. <laughs> oh, true, true. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's so crazy, but. Um, you know, teaching them that you're really, the game's more against yourself first than the mm. other person. Because everybody has a different skill set that they're bringing to the game. And you can, you're not responsible for knowing their skill set. You can try to watch their old matches or try to try to know their game and coach on their game and know they like to do this. But ultimately, it's how, how are you doing what you need to do to respond to what they do? And right. if you're not the fastest runner, then you you got to sort of know that about yourself and either play strategically and learn that or figure out how to accept and congratulate someone for something they're good at for, for yeah. a fair win. Um, yeah. Really just using this as a way to balance play and personal growth. Yeah, exactly. So if people want to get more information on performance anxiety, are there specific books or websites that you recommend? Probably great books, and I don't know any off the top of my head. I can give you some uh, lists of things that I would be able to figure out in a more, if I search, if I look through my stuff, if I was actually in an office. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But uh, I think it's really, I would emphasize, yes, there are going to be workbooks I can give you that you can link or probably talks. I think it's important to figure out sort of a smorgasbord of all of it. Like get, get a Ted talk about it, get a workbook, get a book that's for parents, get a book that's for the person struggling, get a book that helps identify if there is struggle or not. But ultimately it's just about human experience and how to create space for somebody to process that for themselves, to talk about what it's like to play, how I feel, what goes on for me, what I like about it, what I don't like about it. Is there something I want to change so that there's, you know, not such a cookie cutter thing that leaves somebody missing what they need to focus on. That makes sense. That makes sense. Well, Abby, it's been so nice talking with you. I really appreciate you You doing this. And um, yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's really helpful to have these kinds of conversations and, and at, the very least, hopefully it's going to plant a seed for some people to kind of take a closer look at, at what may or may not be happening with their own child. And, you know, it's um, maybe give them some some tools and some language to use around these conversations to help their children uh, deal with the stress and anxiety that everybody is dealing with right now. I mean, the world has gone crazy and, and we're all just kind of trying to make our way through day by day right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, tennis is a great outlet 
for Mm -hmm. most people until it's not, until it becomes an anxiety producer. (laughs) So, right. Yeah. So how do we get rid of what we don't want there? Um, Which is going to be different for everyone. Exactly. But But it's possible, you know, it's not, it's not insurmountable. It doesn't need to be avoided. There, there literally is uh, something to do. Right. Which is great. It's Mm -hmm. hope. It's hope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. And to my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast for tennis parents by a tennis parent. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at ParentingAces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.